God be the glory. Great things he has done. Beloved, our God is great, and he is greatly to be praised. From the rising of the sun and to the setting of the same, our God is worthy to be praised. You have your Bibles or your Bible app. If you don't have that, we, if you, we have a physical copy of God's Word. There should be one or two somewhere near the seat in front of you. You can use that. If you would like a physical copy of God's Word and you don't have one, feel free to take one of those as our gift to you because we believe that there is power, soul-saving power, life-changing power in the Word of God. There is a saying in which I have full belief that the Word does the work. And so if we will get more into his word, it will change our hearts, it will change our mind, and that will lead to a change of behavior and actions. Matthew, beginning with chapter number eight, that's where we'll be this morning. We'll go, we'll begin with verse number 18, then go through chapter nine, verse number eight. For those who are unaware, my name is Brandon Reddick, and I have the pleasure of serving as a lead servant here at the Bridge Church, where we exist to develop fully devoted followers of Christ in a multi-ethnic context. To echo the words of Courtney, on behalf of our elders, our staff members, and all of those who make up the body of the Bridge Church, we are thankful all of you who are with us, who are not regularly, uh, regular attenders of the Bridge Church, to those of you who are streaming with us, we say thank you for being with us. Welcome, and it is our prayer that something will be saying, said, or done that will encourage you in your walk with Christ. And if you are not yet a follower of Christ, our hope and our prayer and our plea is that you will hear clearly that God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die the death that you deserve, to take upon himself the punishment that you have earned. And that same Jesus that died was buried, uh, but victoriously rose from the grave with all power in his hands. And beloved, if you would put all of your hope, all of your confidence, all of your trust in Jesus Christ, the good news is that you will be saved. That is not a wish. That is not a desire. That is a promise that you will be saved, forgiven from your sins, rescued from the wrath of God. Matthew chapter number 8 beginning with verse number 18. As is our custom, let us stand in honor and reverence to God's holy word. Matthew chapter number 8. Beginning with verse number 18. You can follow along on the screen if you would like. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. 
And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, the two there were two demon-possessed men that met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. And so they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drove in the water. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to, to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Chapter 9, verse number 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For what is, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. You may have your seat. One of the things that I get picked on when I'm home is by my son because he says I read too much scripture when I preach. He knows that the more scripture I read, the longer the sermon may be. One of the reasons, like today, we read so much scripture is that one of the the Literary features of Matthew in this section is 
he gives sets of miracles and sets of threes. And so we see three miracles here in this story. And so one would think that if Matthew was giving us a triad of miracle stories, that there would be some point, some reason to why he would be giving us these three stories together. Why is Matthew giving us these three stories? To understand what Matthew is doing, to understand the main idea or thematic thrust of these passages, we actually need to review what we can call the top and the tail of these passages. To the, for the top, we need to go first to Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 through 29. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 through 29. And it says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as, here it is, one who had authority, and not as their scribes. That's the top. Let's go to the tail. Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse number 8. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, here's the tale, who had given such authority to men. Based on these two verses, it is clear that the author's point in recording these miracles is to demonstrate the authority of Jesus Christ. Today we will see three ways in which Christ's authority is exercised. That word authority means the right to command, control, or govern. And this is important in the book of Matthew because Matthew's primary overall emphasis is to show, to demonstrate, to tell that Jesus is the king. The long-awaited Messiah has arrived, and he is here. And so now he is giving us proofs that Jesus is king. And to be king, you have to have power and authority. The first part of our text this morning tells us, first of all, how we should respond to one and authority. So first of all, let's look together at the demands of Christ's authority. Verses 18 through 22 tells us of two different interactions between Jesus and two would-be followers of Christ. In this first interaction, a scribe comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. It should surprise us that of all the people who desire to follow Jesus, in this text, it is a scribe. Up until this point in the book of Matthew, the scribes have been those who reject Jesus. They have been somewhat of the antagonist of the narratives. However, the scribe says, he's willing to, this scribe says, I'm willing to follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. And upon first reading, this sounds very admirable. 
How does Jesus respond to this scribe? Look at, with me at verse 20. He's, it says, and Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus clearly knows this man's heart. He knows that this man thinks he's ready to follow Christ, but yet he has not yet considered the cost of following Christ. Beloved, the first demand of Christ's authority here is that we ought to count the cost. Jesus makes it clear that Following him means you have to identify with his poverty, his homelessness, his humiliation. And if you're not ready and willing to follow him into poverty and homelessness, then you're not ready to follow Christ. Beloved, the lesson that we are to learn this morning is that commitment to Christ is too important to make without deliberation and without awareness of what it will cost us. See, faith, saving faith, counts the cost and pays the price. Faith counts the cost of sacrifice, service, suffering, and self-denial. Faith counts the cost of foregoing safety, security, and convenience, our modern-day golden calves. Faith counts the cost of humiliation. That's the first interaction. There's a second interaction beginning in verse number 21 of chapter 8. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. When, when we see disciples here, Matthew is using it right here uh, contextually in a more generic sense of just someone who follows another. So this sounds, let's be honest, this sounds like a reasonable request. The man's father has passed and he wants to give him a proper burial. And this would have been a very reasonable and responsible request under Jewish culture and customs. However, we must understand that in the Middle East, burying, why can't I say this word? Burying one's father could mean a number of different things. For instance, it could mean that the father was not yet dead. Thus, the child or children would have to wait until the father actually died before they could actually bury the father. So this would-be disciple is likely asking for an indefinite deferral into enrolling into the school of Christ. Another understanding of burying one's father was that it meant that I need to fulfill my duties so that I can get my inheritance. So this would-be disciple may be all about the Benjamins. He's more concerned about his money than following Christ. Whichever interpretation you follow, what we must observe in our text is that this would-be disciple says, let me first go. The issue here is not really burying the father. The issue is priority. 
For the fully devoted follower of Christ, Jesus must be first above all. So what's the second demand of Christ's authority? To prioritize Christ and his kingdom. Faith must recognize the priority of Christ in his kingdom. Is that not what Jesus taught us uh, in during his sermon when he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Christ and his kingdom must come first. And I know, I know you're saying, man, this is rough. Jesus being first, even above burying one's father, this is how radical following Christ is. We here in our Western Christianity have made following Christ so easy, so comfortable, so convenient. And Jesus says, those who follow me will require radical commitment. These are the terms that Christ has established for those who would follow him. Discipleship means following Christ on his terms, not our terms. So those are the demands of Christ's authority. That's how we should respond to the authority of Christ. Follow him on his terms. Christ above all. Now we're going to see three demonstrations of Christ's authority. Three demonstrations of Christ's authority. Matthew gives us three demonstrations. And what we will see is that the authority of Christ is both expansive and extensive. First, we see Jesus' authority over nature or disaster, natural disaster. Beginning in verse 23, we learn that when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him, which is, by the way, the appropriate response to the Lord. The story is that as they got into the boat and they were on the sea, there was a great storm. The boat was being swamped by the waves. And in spite of all this, homeboy Jesus is asleep. So the disciples go to Jesus and they say to him in verse 25, save us, O Lord, we are perishing. And immediately following this request, we learn of two rebukes in our text. One is very clear. The other one is not as clear. The first rebuke is to his disciples. Jesus asked his disciples, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. By the way, that word for afraid there that Jesus used can also be translated cowardly. This gives us an idea of how scared they are. Remember that these are experienced fishermen. They would have had significant experience with storms, yet they are cowardly afraid. And this cowardice or fear is evidence of a lack of faith. And this is what Jesus rebukes. Jesus expects his followers, his disciples, to be people who are full of faith in him and his power, even in the midst of chaos. 
there's a second rebuke in the text. This rebuke is to the sea. Jesus says in the latter half of verse 26, that then he rose, and the text says, then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. I love how Matthew does this. He says, in the beginning, he says, there's a great storm, and now Jesus works, and now there's a great calm. I, I just love that. Notice how powerful the authority of Christ is. Usually when a storm calms, it's gradual. The winds slow, the waves gradually cease, but here there is no gradual calming or ceasing. The calming of the sea and the waves is great and sudden. And beloved, this demonstrates how much authority Christ has over nature. It also explains why he was asleep in the midst of this storm. Because Christ knows how much authority he has over nature, he knows that there is nothing that nature can do to him without his permission. And beloved, let me just drop this in here for free. This should be the case for the followers of Christ. Sometimes, watch this, sometimes, I love this actually, faith is taking a nap. Anybody who knows me know I will take a nap in the middle of a day. Matter of fact, I used to have a couch when I had an office. I had a couch in my office so I could take a nap. I'm faithful. Sometimes faith is resting even in the midst of chaos. That's, that's the point I'm after. Here's, I love, there's a pastor called Ray Ortland. He, he tweets some of these Nice saying sometimes. He, and sometimes he just, he will tweet something saying, you can go to bed. You can go to sleep because God never sleeps nor slumbers. He's got him in control. Even in the midst of a pandemic, you can go to sleep. Even in the midst of, 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 of uncertainty, you can rest. And rest is actually evidence that I trust God and his sovereignty. And this leaves when now that Christ has spoken to the sea and, and, and the, there's been this great calm, this leaves his disciples wondering, what sort of man is this? That even the winds and sea obey him. They, they have to be wondering, who really is this man? Because what we know of in our Old Testament scripture is that there's only one person that has power over the seas and the oceans, and that is God himself. So what manner of man is this? Let's, let's keep reading. We see that Jesus not only has authority over disaster, but he also has authority over demons. Matthew records for us another demonstration of Christ's authority. Beginning with verse 28, it tells us that Jesus came to the other side. By the way, good, good, just old Baptist preaching says the reason these disciples should have had faith is because when Jesus, before he even got into the boat, he said, let us go to the other side. The fact that Jesus said we're going to the other side means that even if there's a storm, we'll make it through. 
And beloved, this is what we see right here in verse 28. The text says that when they came to the other side, they made it over. The text says they came to this country of the Gadarenes. Two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs. And when they saw Christ, the demons asked him, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? When these demons speak, they actually answer the question that the disciples just asked. Remember, the disciples just said, what sort of man is this that even the wind and sea obey him? And the demons tell us who he is. First of all, he is the son of God. And the fact that he's the son of God means that he is God, he is divine, and he is all-powerful. He's the creator of the universe and all that dwells within it. The demons reveal something else about Christ, though. They ask, have you come to torment us before the time? The demons know that their time to destroy and wreak havoc on the earth has an expiration date. They know that Christ will torment them in the end when he sends them to hell eternally. But they also realize that there is a difference between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. The time of their torment is after his second coming. The demons know that when Christ comes the second time, he will make all things right. When Christ comes a second time, they know evil will be no more. And this is the sort of man, beloved, that even the winds and sea obey. Not only do the winds and sea obey him, but demons even have to obey him. Watch this. The demons know that Jesus has authority to cast them out, which is why they say in verse 31, if you cast us out. They already know what's coming. They know he has power and authority over them. But watch this. They even recognize his authority in that they, they ask for permission for what they can do after he casts them out. They ask for his permission to possess the herd of pigs. You only ask for permission from someone who has authority over you. Beloved, this passage makes it clear that Jesus has authority not, not only over disaster, but demons as well. Even demons have to submit to the lordship of Christ. And what is true of these demons in this passage, I must admit, is both encouraging and convicting. It's encouraging in that Christ has victory over them which is indicative of his victory over their leader, who is Satan. Satan will one day be defeated finally and forever. That's encouraging. However, it's convicting in that demons seem in this passage to have more faith in the truth about Jesus Christ than some of his own people. Demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Demons believe that Jesus is coming again. Demons believe that Jesus has authority over them. Yet there are some who choose to disbelieve in the divinity of Christ. 
There are some who never consider the implications of the second coming of Christ. It's both encouraging and convicting. He has authority over disaster. He has authority over demons. But he also has authority over disease. That's our final passage beginning in chapter 9. In the final demonstration of Christ's authority, we see his authority over disease. Beginning in chapter 9, we learned that some people brought a paralytic lying on a bed. And verse 3 says that when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. It, it, we must observe here that the text says in verse 3 that Jesus saw their faith. Their faith was visible. In what way? We can't know all the ways, but what we can deduce from the text is that their faith was evident and that they brought the man to Jesus. Beloved, I think Matthew wants us to see a little bit that our faith ought to be evident. That, I think that's why James, in, who wrote the book of James, said that faith without works is dead. There should be actions that give evidence of our trust. So after seeing their faith, Jesus tells this paralytic, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus says this, these scribes accuse him of blasphemy. For these scribes, they know their Old Testament, and they know that only God can forgive sins. So if someone who is not God claims to forgive sins, then that person is committing blasphemy. Jesus, showing his omniscience, knows that they are thinking evil in his heart, in their hearts. He asked them, what's easier? To forgive sins or to say rise and walk? Uh, I'm like, Jesus, both of those pretty hard, but <laughs> let's go. <laughs> Verse 6, Jesus says to them, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he arose and went home. And Jesus says that the healing of the paralytic gives evidence that he has authority on earth to forgive sins. Beloved, that actually is the good news of this passage. Jesus has authority to forgive our diseases, not just our physical diseases, but also our soul disease. That's what the prophet Isaiah was referring to in Isaiah chapter 53, verse number 5, when he says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Our, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Beloved, the good news is that Jesus has authority to heal all our soul's diseases. And the demonstration of his authority over disaster, demons, and physical disease is clear evidence that he has authority to forgive our sins. And beloved, this is good news because forgiveness of sin is our greatest and deepest need. And Jesus has met that need by going to the cross, 
to die our death on our behalf for the sins that we are guilty of. And that same Jesus was buried in the grave, but he had demonstrated his authority once again over death, sin, and Satan. When he rose from the grave with all power in his hands. Beloved, the response demanded by Christ for those who seek forgiveness of sin is trust. Complete trust in Jesus Christ. It's surrendering to his call to follow him, having considered the cost of what following him demands. How do we respond then to these lessons, these demonstrations of Christ's authority? I think the text will tell us how to respond. First, it is clear That because Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth, our response is to follow him. Three times in, in the first few verses of chapter 8, beginning with verse number 18, the word that's repeated is follow. 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 That's what discipleship is. It is following Christ wherever he goes. And how he says to go. It is following Christ even in, in two uncomfortable places. It's following Christ. That's how we respond to Christ's authority. I think, since I got a couple of extra minutes, I think I'll lean into this a little bit. And I want to speak specifically to those of us who attend the Bridge Church. Following Christ requires us to be uncomfortable. It can be uncomfortable to see some guy jumping up and down as he leads worship. Because you're not used to that. That's not how you learned to do church. It can be uncomfortable to see a guy be so charismatic in how he preaches. It can be uncomfortable, let me make us really uncomfortable now, to know that you could be sitting next to a Republican or a Democrat. I, I see. It can be uncomfortable to know that your neighbor cheers for Kansas State. It can be uncomfortable to know that people you go to church with believe in Black Lives Matter as a true theological statement, by the way. It can be uncomfortable to sing music that you've never heard before. It can be uncomfortable to go to small group and have to talk about race and relationships people who don't agree with you, don't talk like you, look like you. It can be uncomfortable to go to church at Grove in 13. Beloved, my point is Christ has not called us to comfort. He's called us to come and die to ourselves. 
One of the reasons we see so much division and segregation in the body of Christ is because we're all seeking comfort. We're seeking our preferences. And following Christ requires denying ourselves. Now, by, by no means am I saying we, we're doing it the right way. We haven't figured it out. We're still a mess, too. But we're God's beautiful mess. It's following Christ on his terms, in his way. I think the other response is our Christ in, in, in our Texas is we ought to just simply trust Christ. That's what we learned from the scene uh, at, at, at where there was a great storm. They were on the boat. That even in the midst of chaos, we still ought to trust, put all of our faith in Jesus Christ. That even in the midst of chaos, we, we should know that he can bring order. But even if he doesn't, we know that with Christ, we'll make it to the other side. And then I think that same passage teaches us because Christ has all authority over disaster, demons, and disease. We ought to learn to rest in Christ. And sometimes that rest will be literally, literal, and sometimes that rest will be figurative. Sometimes, I'm, y'all think I'm playing, I'm serious. Sometimes rest means actually getting some rest. We now live in an age of productivity to where we always got to be moving, doing stuff. We've forgotten how to rest. What makes you think you're better than God? Guess what he did on the seventh day after he created the world and human beings? He ceased from that work. He rested. Sometimes that means I'm not going to have all this internal turmoil going on with worry, anxiety, and, and all this nervousness and everything. I'm going to rest and trust in Christ, even in the midst of chaos. Come on, worship team. Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. And the good news is that we're going to learn in the coming chapters of Matthew that Christ gives his church some of that same authority. And we're going to learn how we are to steward the authority that Christ gives to his church. Somebody here today in this room or on this stream, needs to respond to the authority of Christ by putting all of their complete trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone for forgiveness of sins. He has authority to forgive all of your sins. Others need to respond to the authority of Christ by continually submitting to his lordship in every area of life. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for what our eyes have seen and our ears have heard. We thank you that you have authority even over our enemies, the devil and demons. And so now we know that there is power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. But through all of this, we see that you are victorious. And so now, God, let us meditate on that victory 
live in that victory, rest in that victory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.